So what I'd like to do now is drill down just a little, in a little more detail on this outline of the polycanon that's on your uh, second page of the handout, just to look at what's here. So we talked about the three baskets of the Vinaya, the suttas, and the Abhidhamma. The Vinaya is of not much concern to us as lay people. If you're going to become a monk or a nun, you want to read the Vinaya. If you're not, you don't need to. The Abhidhamma is a very detailed and I would say difficult field of study that not many of us have the kind of inclination to dive deeply into. So for the most part, we don't worry about the Abhidhamma. Where we focus our study is on this central basket, the Sutta Pitaka. So let's look at that in a little more detail. It's a combination of actual discourses from the Buddha, what are purported to be, discourses from the Buddha, and later editions. And my study has mostly been uh, the actual words of the Buddha, and that's what I recommend for you also. So let's talk about which pieces of the Sutta Pitaka are actual discourses of the Buddha. So, this Sutta Pitaka is broken into five Nikayas, or collections. And if you look down the list, it's the Diga, the Majima, the Samyutta, the Anguttara, and the Kudaka. Of these, the Diga, the Majima, the Samyutta, and the Anguttara are all considered the word of the Buddha. There's this Pali term, Buddhavacha, which means Buddha voice. All these four are considered the word of the Buddha, either spoken by the Buddha or spoken by a disciple with the approval of the Buddha. So sometimes you might hear Sariputta speaking it, but the Buddha approves it. There's a nice, really nice discourse in the Majjhima number 44 that's spoken by the nun, Dhammadina, who I think is the foremost woman uh, proficient in expounding the Dhamma in his day. But generally, they all carry the authentic imprint of a Buddha, a Buddha Vacha, word of the Buddha. Then the Kudaka Nikaya is considered a minor collection or lesser collection, and it's got a mixture of word of the Buddha and other stuff. So in this one, the word of the Buddha are Dhammapada, Udana, Itivudaka, and Sutta Nipata. And the others are more commentarial. So I, I want to show you kind of what this adds up to in modern translations. This is the Udana and Itivudaka. I'll, I'll start to make a stack of them here. The Dhammapada in a very good translation by our own Gil Fronstel, highly recommended. Sutta Nipata, which is a really engaging and interesting text, but there's not a great translation out. This is the Anguttara Nikaya in the five volumes from the Pali Text Society, but Bhikkhu Bodhi's next effort is going to be a whole new translation of this. Don't bother with this translation. Wait for Bhikkhu Bodhi's, which should be out in about a year. Or if you can't wait, there's a selection from the Anguttara in this book called Numerical Discourses of the Buddha. Also very good. The Samyutta Nikaya, my version was in two volumes originally, the blue book. But this has now been reprinted as just one. The Majjhima Nikaya. And they're always spoken of in this or the order that they're listed here. Diga, Majjhima, Samyutta, Anguttara, Kudukha. And then finally, the long discourses, the Diga Nikaya, translated by Morris Walsh. So this is the stack of Buddhavacha. And in the original, the Diga was three volumes, the Majjhima was three volumes, the Samyutta was five, the Anguttara is five, and each of these little ones are one each. So we have close to 20 volumes here of the Buddha's words from 500 years before the birth of Jesus. And what do we have of Jesus? What, 100 pages? 
all the Gospels, a hundred pages of teaching, most of which are, over, are overlapping. How, how did this survive? How did we get this much? So, there's a lot here. Um, study would, could last you for the rest of your life if you want to take it up. Uh, say a little bit about each of the five uh, main Nikayas. The Diga Nikaya is considered kind of introduction for outsiders. It has a lot of stories and a lot of myths. The meaning of Diga is long, so these are long discourses. There is some good Dhamma in here, but there are a lot of stories, and it's not the place that you would or I would want to start. It appealed to the um, consciousness of Indians at the time because it connected with the mythology. The Majima is a collection of middle-length discourses, and it's a nice combination of stories and profound teachings. You'll find all the central points of the Buddha's teaching in here. But it's also got uh, enough stories, conversations, dialogues, debates to keep it kind of entertaining. So it's a good mix of both those two styles. And in general, if you want to read the suttas exhaustively, this is the book that one would start with. Our sutta from today will come from this book. The Samyutta is sort of the professional meditator's handbook. It contains the most detailed instructions and the most kind of discriminating analysis of the Buddhist doctrines. And I'd say the most in-depth. So I think of this as the the one, if you, if you were sent off to a desert island by yourself to meditate, this is the book you would want in that setting. And then the Anguttara kind of ended up being all the other discourses that they didn't know where to put. And they're arranged um, by numbers. You know how fond the Buddha was of lists. The five hindrances and the three characteristics and the seven factors of enlightenment and so forth. So the Anguttara means uh, many-factored, and it's arranged by numbers. So there's the Book of the Ones, where the Buddha says, There is one thing, O bhikkhus, which more than anything contributes to the growth of wisdom, and that is association with the wise. There are two things, O monk, which one should never forget in one's practice, and so on. So this has one, the book of ones through the book of elevens. And in that, you can find all kinds of things. The best advice for lay people is in the Anguttara. It's not organized by section, unfortunately, but there are some really great suttas about um, household life, about relationships. Oh, here's a little one. I don't know if any of you have heard of this or interested, may not be interested. The Buddha said that if a couple wishes to stay together in their next lifetime, it is possible. If they are similarly matched in faith, wisdom, generosity, and ethics, and they make a resolve that they'd like to stay together, then they can also be together in the next lifetime. That kind of thing is found in the Anguttara. There's a wonderful discourse on wealth. You know, sometimes you get the idea from the monastic side of the teachings that we should be embarrassed if we have money. But that's not the way the Buddha saw it. The Buddha saw lay people as important, necessary, vital sources of support for the monastic communities. So he spoke in praise of a lay person who had gained their wealth lawfully and used it wisely. And using it wisely means using it for one's own enjoyment, using it to support one's family, and doing good works with it, supporting others. So he spoke in praise of wealth for lay people. So that kind of discourse is in the Anguttara. Then the Kutika, just kind of miscellaneous uh, sections, but some of them are really beautiful. The Udana and Itivudika have some very beautiful uh, passages. Sutta Nipata is one of the oldest texts, least altered over time. So very engaging as well. 
So, why, sh- why would we want to study? What's the purpose? Actually, I'll, you know, I'll take a minute pause before we go into the why study. And see, do you have any questions on the history stuff and the, just what's in the Pali Canon before we move on? Yes. The Mahayana thread, was that one of the 18 original or did it just sort of kind of co-evolve? It seems to, I, nobody's very clear on where the Mahayana sprang from. Some suggest that it came out of this group called the Mahasangikas, who spun off in, I think it was around Calcutta somewhere, somewhere to the east, and had a different vinaya. Um, but they haven't been able to pin down the source of the Mahayana. So nobody knows. But around 400 years after the death of the Buddha, the scriptures started springing up. The, the first ones were the Prajnaparamita sutras, um, perfection of wisdom teachings, which were about the understanding of emptiness emphasis on the bodhisattva and so forth. So they just kind of appeared as far as scholars can tell and they don't really know where the roots are for them. So what language were the scriptures written? The Mahayana sutras are all, as far as I know, in Sanskrit. Some of the earlier schools' canons were also in Sanskrit. Uh, so the Sarvastivadins and maybe the Sautrantikas, um, canon that we've only got fragments today, may also have been in Sanskrit. But um, oh, the only complete one that survived was the Pali canon. So yeah. uh, Mahayana and Theravada and uh, Vajana are the only three that essentially survived to today? Well, uh, there are some other schools. Other schools grew up in China that um, have flowered and kind of gone in somewhat different directions. So... The Huayen school uh, grew out of a later philosophical movement in India called the Chittimatrans. And so they kind of went off on their own trajectory. Uh, Tian Tai was another school that started in, in China. And then the Pure Land school um, started in China. And then when it got to Japan, I think that was the route from which the Nichiren Shoshu schools evolved. So there are a number of other schools. The predominant ones that we see in the West are the Theravadan, Mahayana, mainly Zen, and then Vajrayana, which is the Tibetan style. And I tend to talk about those because they're the ones that use meditation as the vehicle. Could you give a, you know, what the principal difference is of each? I know that's probably a huge something I've been trying to understand for quite some time. Sure. Well, the Mahayana has a little different emphasis um, because they put emptiness at the center philosophically. It was the Mahayana who, uh, as far as I know, came up with the description of the paramis or the paramitas as the path. And because their emphasis is on the bodhisattva path, the goal is different. So the goal in the Mahayana is not to become an arahant or just awakened. The goal is to become a Buddha. That's a much higher goal. But one of the suggestions that I read by scholars is that the goal changed when there weren't so many arahants being created. It was like, okay, well, if we can't get to that, let's create an even more lofty goal that we know we won't be able to get to in this lifetime, and that will explain why we didn't get there this lifetime, and then we'll go on and on and on over many lives. The Mahayana is um, a little more, I would say, associated with lay practice than the Theravada is. The Theravada has been very, very monastic-focused, and the Mahayana has had a little more lay flavor. So you'll find in the Mahayana more openness to engaging in sense pleasures. And, uh, I mean, there was a very interesting movement that came out of the Mahayana, this Chittimatran school, which um, it's also called Yogacara, presented the goal or the unconditioned in a way that it wasn't so far removed from the six senses. So, in the Theravadan description of the unconditioned, one gets a sense that one kind of has to disconnect from material reality 
in order to access Nibbana. You'll hear this very clearly in some of the descriptions from some schools that the six senses have to fall away before one can connect with the unconditioned. The Yogacara or Chittimatran school said that, um, no, you can access the unconditioned with all six senses functioning because it's here now anyway. If it's unconditioned, it doesn't arise and pass, so it must be here. So the six senses can't block it. And what that does is it opens up the possibility of the ultimate reality and the conventional reality coming together. And so one way to express that, see there's just a philosophical flavor that comes in where there's not such a separation between the ultimate and the day-to-day. So another way to say it is is provides philosophical avenue for the daily experience to be infused with the divine. So that came out of the Yogacara. So is the unconditioned the absolute? Is yeah. The, yeah. Okay. Synonyms. Yeah. What was the tantra? Uh, so, let me get to this quick. What was the tantra's introduction in Mahayana? Oh, let me come back to that one. That's a little longer. Um, uh, I had a comment and a question. The yes. comment is, it strikes me with the Mahayana that another major characteristic is its open canon, that it's, there's new texts being found purportedly from you know, a deva or a Buddha or something. Mm-hmm. And that, that openness of the canon continues. Yes. Even now, somebody will find a hidden treasure. Yeah. And uh, my question is actually about pronunciation. Like, mm-hmm. uh, Panya, you said wisdom, yet it's spelled P-A-N-N-A with the tildes on mm-hmm. top. So do you automatically, mm-hmm. if you see an N with the tilde on top, it goes nya? Yes. Oh, <laughs> there We'll talk a little about pronunciation as we get into the sutta. Mm-hmm. So, it's a good question. When you have an N with a tilde, it's an N-Y sound. And if Vinaya had been spelled with a long accent over the A, it would be Vinaya. But it's not, so the A is kind of uh, Vinaya. Like that. Question about how Tantra came in? Yeah, well, what was the influence on Mahayana and where, did it, where was it influenced and where did it come from? So, in northern India, around 7th, 8th century, uh, Hindu practitioners were starting to work with the, well, they had been for many years, but they were continuing to work with the energy currents in the body. And they found that a powerful way to rev up those energy currents was through sexual union. So they developed spiritual practices that used the energy of sexual intercourse to activate bodily energies that could be devoted to waking up or becoming purified or something. So Tantra really has a few levels of of meaning. Um, First, there is just the knowing the bodily energy independent of sexuality. Second, there's figuring out how the sexual energies can be integrated and used within that. Then those those were furthered by um, devotional relationships to different deities. And, you know, the deity brings out a certain quality of energy in the heart and mind, and so that's reflected in the body. So those three things together, the, the control, manipulation of physical energy, sexual energy, and deity devotionals, came from Hinduism and were appropriated by Buddhist groups around 7th to 8th century in India. And so in, in Tibetan Buddhism today, Vajrayana is more or less synonymous with Tantra. So some schools use... Um, Tantra to understand the, you know, the working of the physical energy, manipulation of the physical energy, the visualization of the deity, um, purely on a meditative approach. Some schools use Tantra to do that and include the practices of sexual union um, as part of the spiritual practice. So it's a different ballgame than Theravadan monasticism. <laughs> You know, there are lots of books on 
Tantra in um, the West now, most of which focus on the sexual aspect, but underlying it, there is a rigorous system of understanding a bodily energy and how to manipulate it um, that lies at the base of it. So Dzogchen and Mahamudra grew out of the Yogacara Chittamatran school. Um, so philosophically, they have that you know, permeability of the conventional and the ultimate. The meditation practices were, um, it's said, brought to Tibet by Padmasambhava. Dzogchen was in about the 8th century. Padmasambhava came, it's, it's said, out of the Swat Valley of Pakistan. So the tantric practices evolved into these highly refined meditative practices that focus on the nature of mind and came into Tibet through India. One more and then we'll move on, please. Bon was a native religion in Tibet that has had some influence on the Buddhism in Tibet, but I don't know any more details than that. I think it's a shamanistic religion, and so it probably fit quite well with the energy manipulations that Tantra opened up, and I don't know what it's contributed beyond that. The idea of tulkus, by the way, came out of Tibet. That was not in in any Indian system. The idea that a reincarnated master could pick their rebirth and be recognized, that's a Tibetan uh, creation. One last question. Where did the Yogacara come from? Where did that emerge? So Yogacara was a school that developed, I think, around the 4th century in India, in northern India. Um, Vasubandhu is a name that's associated with the philosophical foundation of that school. So if you Google him you can find probably papers on it. Thanks. Okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, why we bother studying this stuff. And I think there are a few reasons. First, very simply, the suttas have a lot of great information that tell us how to live and practice and understand. When you think about the aspects of the Eightfold Path, sila, samadhi, panya, they cover all those. They treat them exhaustively, in detail, in some ways that we may not have heard before, some ways that are very helpful. So they really cover the basics of the path very fully. Secondly, sort of as we talked about with the three different kinds of wisdom, reading is a powerful way to develop insight. When you hear about the Buddha's insights, it plants a seed And then through your meditation, through your inquiry, your own investigation, the caring that you bring to those questions is what waters that seed and makes it flower in insight. It's just like when you first heard in a Dharma talk this concept of not-self. Wasn't it perplexing? Wasn't it like, how can that be? And yet, if you got curious about that, Wow, how could that be? What do they mean the body isn't the self? What do they mean that my thoughts aren't me? And you start to investigate it, then that investigation opens up to some moments of insight that can be truly freeing, kind of deeply freeing. Oh, this fear, it's not me, I don't own it. So in the same way, the Buddha has recorded very deep insights and understanding in his discourses And all of those are new grounds for us to take up, reflect upon, inquiring to, and then that waters, that fertilizes our own practice. One of the key things in the way I see the suttas is that they're they're incomparable tools for developing the factor of right view. You know, right view is the start of the Eightfold Path. It's also the end of the Eightfold Path. Everything starts from there, and everything culminates there. So essentially, the whole path is to transform the way we see the world and the way we understand the world. The suttas are telling us again and again and again how the Buddha saw the world, which is just a way of saying how a free, awakened, unattached, 
uh, unhindered mind sees this world of experience. So we can use that to check our own understanding. It's like the Buddha will say things that will kind of startle us. That's good. Because that leads us to reflect, oh, what would it be like if I looked at things that way? Where am I uh, blind? Where is there a corner of attachment or delusion that I haven't looked into so fully? So it can really um, shake us up a little bit and get us to examine our own take on the world to kind of keep us going straight on the track. Ajahn Chai used to say, well, actually this is in response to a question, somebody would say, one meditator came in and I heard you gave him one piece of advice, the next meditator came in, you gave him totally the opposite piece of advice. Are you mixed up or you don't know what you're doing? Or, you know, why is that? And he said, look, I see people going down a path I know really well. Some people I see wandering off to the right, and so I shout, go left, go left. Other people I see wandering off to the left, and I shout, go right, go right. It's just to get them back on that center track. So the suttas are a very good way for us to know if we're on that center track. If we start diverging from the Buddha's take on things very greatly, it's a good cause for questioning. Of course, we have to have faith in these words before we'll be able to use them that way. We don't take it blindly. But once we start to study and acquire some faith, very, very useful for kind of refining our take on the path, on life, on right view. Now, this brings up the whole question of concepts and learning about concepts. Uh, you know, our meditation practice is been kind of um, anti-conceptual from the beginning, which is great. It's what we've needed. We needed to get back to direct experience. We had that as children. We sort of lost it in all the years of schooling. Meditation gave us a way to get back. Breath in, breath out. Body sensation arising and passing. Thought coming and going. This is anger. This is joy. This is fear. This is contentment. We learned what it was to be with our own experience And we did that without too many concepts. But now, having done that, we can start to bring in some concepts again. Because what's the way concepts were, this is the way one of my teachers explained it to me. If you go out in the garden and you're digging for a morning, your hands get dirty, right? You can brush off the dirt. You come in, they're they're kind of still a little muddy. So run a little bit of water and put soap on your hands and you wipe them. Then what you've got is a big soapy, dirty mess. So that you've got to run under clear running water to get rid of that. Then your hands are really clean. Okay, Dharma concepts are like soap. Worldly concepts are the dirt. We come in with all kinds of mistaken worldly concepts, like this is me, this is my body, these are my emotions. Those are not correct. So we have to take up Dharma concepts to clean those off. But then we get stuck with the Dharma concepts. Oh, I'm all about not-self. I know you're not quite there yet, but I'm about not-self. So we don't want to attach to the Dharma concepts either, and that's why we need meditation to rub, to wash off the Dharma concepts so the mind is just clean and bright and not fixated anywhere. But we have to really get in and apply those concepts. So concepts like the five aggregates, concepts like dependent origination, concepts like becoming, this this word bhava, what it means to take birth. We need to grapple with those until we can track those. They are profound concepts and we can track them in our moment-to-moment experience. Once we've understood, then we can let go. Because all the concepts are really just encouraging us, let go, let go, let go. But we have to apply them in every little corner where holding comes before we can let go. Uh, inspiration is another reason to read the suttas. There are some very moving, inspiring, dramatic passages. And we'll come to one today that I hope, hope you'll enjoy and find inspiring. So I'm not going to say a lot more about that. Um, 
not so often that Western teachers will say to their students, go all the way for liberation. Go for full enlightenment. Make that your goal. But the Buddha does it all the time. He's always saying that. It's good for us to hear that. It kind of picks up our idea of what's possible. One of, one of my students just got into reading the Majjhima and we were talking about this and I said, do you find it a little daunting you know, that the Buddha says things like this? She said, no. She said, it's great. That, it's great the Buddha was telling people to go for it. What else would you want the Buddha to do? <laughs> so it's like that. So you meet this voice that's talking from the depths and pointing to the depths again and again. I find that reading these texts really strengthens the quality of faith. You just get a sense of how reliable this voice is. Now, the question always comes up, you know, how reliable is this voice? These things are 2,500 years old. They've been passed on through who knows who, through talking, through writing down in foreign languages, coming over here. How reliable is any of this? Do we know that any of this is the word of the Buddha? No, we don't. But if you start to hang out with that voice, you get a sense of where that voice is coming from. Because one of the things I find, I think the thing I find most amazing in these texts, I probably read close to 3,500 pages of the translations plus footnotes from these books. There's almost no internal disagreement. There are one or two statements I kind of disagree with. One or two in 3,500 pages. There are a lot I simply don't know about. There are a lot I kind of write off because they're cultural and don't seem relevant today. But when this voice, the Buddha of the Pali Suttas, talks about the way things are, the way the mind is, the way we get caught, and the way we get free, I haven't seen any any disagreement, any discrepancy, anything I thought was off through all those pages. So I think it's unlikely that many different voices contributed to this. I think there are places, and the scholars can tell you more about where, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Venerable Analayo can tell you about where things have been inserted. I think it's very clear that there were editors to this work who inserted stock passages, inserted some other stories, inserted some cultural references that aren't so meaningful today. But if you listen to the sections that talk about the Dhamma, that is the way things are, I find it completely reliable. And that's astounding because that voice of the Buddha is talking about topics of great uh, philosophical and doctrinal subtlety. This is not simple stuff that's being covered here. There are very small distinctions between existence and non-existence, being and non-being, that are being pointed to without any sense of two, two different points of view going on. I'm talking with Wes Nisker about <clears throat> after 2,500 years, it must have gotten turned around a little mm-hmm. here and there. Mm-hmm. And he said, probably, but it works. Yeah, <laughs> that's the other thing. Even if there are some discrepancies, the gist of it works. Yeah. And so reading, reading these texts and starting to get some trust in the fact that this works and that the, um, the voice is consistent, you start to feel that you can really have some faith in the Dhamma, some faith in the Buddha as he's portrayed in these pages. And then uh, something that has always interested me is, what did the Buddha really say? We hear so many things. You know, if you sit in the hall at Spirit Rock, you will hear many different quotes. And I've listened to a lot that are not accurate about the Buddha said this, and I know that he didn't. So this is the way to find out what the Buddha really said about many different topics. So... I, f- I find it really trustworthy in, in that way also. So, 
There have been changes, there have been additions, there have probably been some deletions. I consider them relatively minor. Um, The core of the teachings, I think, is very reliable here. But I want to talk now a little bit about what's tough about reading these, because there are some areas of the suttas that really grate on modern Western sensibilities. So the first thing that you'll see is many discourses are directed to monks and nuns. Those lessons don't work so well for lay people. And we might feel, you know, I should be taking up the practices that monks and nuns are, but we're not monks and nuns. And it doesn't make sense for us to try to take up all the practices of monks and nuns when we're living as lay people. So, simple question. What's the big dividing line between a monastic life and a lay life? Dinner. What? Dinner. 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 (laughs) Evening meal. That's a big one. What else? Children, sex, money, possessions, Possessions, money, somebody said sex, sex. movies, (laughs) CDs, fiction books. All these things are part of our lives as lay people, and they're fine. The Buddha didn't say anything against these for lay people but they're not allowed in the monastic code. So if we listen to a teaching that explains to monks and nuns why they shouldn't be engaging in these things, it's easy for the mind's tendency to think, oh, I shouldn't be either. But the Buddha never meant that and never said that. So we have to keep our ears up when the theme is renunciation. Renunciation is a really powerful practice. That's what Sally taught on this morning. It's a, it's a essential, it's the central piece of the monastic life. Very helpful because you could say it's the, it's the lifestyle of letting go of craving. It is an approach to spiritual life that says anytime craving comes along for anything in the sense realm, I'm not going to follow it. Because I've given it up to start with. I'm not going to have an evening meal. I'm not going to have sex. I'm not going to have money. I'm not going to have children. I'm not going to have possessions. I'm not going to enjoy shows, singing, jewelry, makeup, costumes. I give up all of that. Just reflect for a minute. What would your life be like if you gave up all those things? Let's say you could be supported. Right, but you didn't have any spare money to spend. You'd have the requisites of food, lodging, shelter, and health care, but you didn't have any other money to spend. What would your life be like? Or without your partner? Without an intimate partner? Without listening to music or going to movies? You'd just about be a monk or a nun, wouldn't you? So you might as well ordain and get supported. <laughs> So all of us are in lay life essentially to have access to these sense pleasures. You know, when you think of it, that's essentially what it comes down to. There's nothing wrong with it. Other people will choose a totally renunciate life and follow that guideline, and it works very well for them. But for various reasons, it's not so appealing for us. That's fine. So when the Buddha gets on a rant against sense pleasures, which he does against sexuality, which he does, you have to realize that's for monastics to support their level of renunciation. It's not directed to us as lay people. He spoke differently to different audiences. But we're in between the two audiences that he spoke to because those lay people did not have the intensity of devotion to the practice. So the comment is we're somewhere in between and I fully agree with you. This is also a really interesting place to explore. Where are you in between? To what extent do you resonate with the teachings on renunciation? Because we have all 
benefited from retreats, from silent retreats. We have all tasted some of the power of the renunciate lifestyle. When you're doing a retreat up the hill here, you're slipping into a renunciate lifestyle. You know, if you take the five precepts, you're giving up some things. If you take the eight, you're giving up most everything else. So I found this a really, really interesting seam to kind of keep investigating. And we make these choices day by day. Where on this spectrum from, let's say, overindulgence in sense pleasures into complete renunciation of sense pleasures, where do we want to be? And this is kind of a general question about lifestyle. And it's also a day-to-day question. A friend calls up and wants to go out to a concert. Do we do that or do we stay home and meditate? I could go, you know, any of you could have been home watching the Packers this afternoon. (laughs) Instead, you hear we're talking about suttas. So this question about where I want to renounce and what it will benefit me um, is, is such a fascinating ongoing place to inquire in the place that we're in. I'll tell you the way that I think of it, and I do it in two different ways. I think of my practice when I'm at a facility like Up the Hill as my renunciate practice, and I plan to spend a certain amount of every year in a, in a situation like that so that I'm carrying out a renunciate lifestyle for part of my year. And then when I'm at home, I play with different schedules where I renounce to different degrees. So I've actually just finished a four-week home retreat where I sit for about five hours a day, but I stay up a little bit with email. I go to the gym or exercise virtually every day, listen to a Dharma talk in the evening, but I chat with my wife over meals. And that's it. I don't go out for social things. I don't watch movies. I don't go out listening to music. That's a lovely, for me, it's a lovely way to live. I could just keep going like that for a long time. So playing with this spectrum is really fun. And I encourage you to do it not out of a sense of guilt or shame or I ought to be, but the the idea behind renunciation is one renounces a lesser pleasure or a lesser happiness in order to gain a happiness which is greater. The idea of renunciation is to find a deeper, truer, more reliable source of happiness. So play with that. See what things contribute to it. Then, um, the other thing that will, will rub, and it will probably always rub, is that the suttas are not very friendly to women. Simple example, um, the Buddha resisted, according to one sutta, the Buddha resisted accepting women into ordained life, even though the person who was asking was his stepmother, Mahapajapati, who had nursed him after his mother died, to whom he owed a great deal. And it's recorded that um, when the Buddha agreed to accept women into ordination, he said, oh, but if I do this, the life of these teachings will only be half of what they would have otherwise. Now, I have good news on this score. Venerable Analayo, who is a wonderful scholar of the text who's reading Chinese now as well as Pali, says that um, he doesn't believe this part of the sutta is authentic. Through his investigations, both of the internal facts and inconsistencies in the historical record of that sutta, and by comparison to Chinese sources, where some fragments of the canon have survived, he doesn't believe that account is authentic. Either of the Buddha refusing three times to ordain women, or of the statement that the length of the sasana will be cut in half. So that's nice to know. (laughs) Nonetheless... There are other insults to women all along the way. Um, In the monastic discipline, a nun who's been ordained for 50 years is supposed to bow down to a monk who's been ordained for one day. That's how the seniority goes. The most junior monk is senior to the most senior nun. So these things can really piss one off. And 
a lot of these traditions continue until the, I mean, they do continue to the present day because this is dictated by the Vinaya. The Vinaya has not changed essentially since 2,500 years ago. So this is, these are the rules of conduct that govern monks and nuns in the world today. They won't be changed overnight. So this is really not so suitable for our Western sensibilities. But a few things. One, it's really clear, this comes out of Indian culture of 2,500 years ago. This is the way the whole society was structured. Whatever you may feel about the Buddha's creation of his own culture in the Sangha, he did not go about trying to change the outer culture. He pretty much took the outer culture as it was. He talked about ways that um, people needed to relate to one another in partnerships and raising families, ways that kings should relate to uh, subjects. But he did not actively go out and try to overthrow a monarchy or establish a different social order. His own sangha was very different. He threw out all the caste rules within his own sangha, but he didn't go out and try to abolish the caste rules in the wider society. So what I see is that he sort of left the outer society as he found it. And his own views were probably conditioned by it to an extent. He did take a big step in admitting women at all because generally women were not admitted to holy life at that time. So that in itself was kind of radical. But he put them in a lower class status. Now, was that just so the rest of society wouldn't freak out and stop supporting all of them? Or was it because he really saw it that way? I don't know. I don't know. We may never. So sometimes coming upon this, seeing, okay, there's a cultural element at work in the way the Buddha uh, delivered his teachings and his message, people will say, well, then was he really enlightened? Could he really be enlightened and have those cultural blinders on? My only answer to that is I think he was free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And I think his worldview was formed by the society around him. So I personally think both those things can happen at one time. So this is the situation back in the time of the Buddha. It's continued down to the present day. And I know people who do not feel like supporting current modern Theravadan monks because women aren't supported equally. So, I understand that feeling, and I, I wouldn't try to talk anybody out of that feeling. My personal take is that this situation cannot continue in the West, and will not continue in the West, but it may take 50 years, it may take 75 years, it may take 100 years to change. Because there's a lot of momentum behind the Buddhist tradition and the Vinaya. And I think a lot of the monks, Western monks, are very committed to this change, very interested, very welcoming, wanting to see it happen, but they can't go off totally on their own or they'll lose the connections to their Asian roots. So a lot of the monks are in this middle ground of not agreeing with the way things are, but not having the power to change it overnight. So personally, I feel... um, empathic about their struggle and hope that as things go forward this will move sooner rather than later but I think it has to move it has to move in the West or it's Buddhism in that form isn't going to survive so that's just my personal take but this is one of the things that you'll rub up against in these teachings third thing is intellectually it's very dense Some of these texts are very concise, complicated, uh, broad, and take some time to be with. So just be patient. Just be patient with it. If you learn the basic vocabulary, you'll work your way in. Now here's a basic vocabulary list. And I think I'm just going to say them quickly because I think you probably already know it. Four foundations of mindfulness. Five aggregates. Six sense bases. Five hindrances three kilesas, ten fetters, 
five spiritual faculties, seven factors of awakening, four Brahma-viharas, 12 links of dependent origination. Once you kind of get your mind around that basic vocabulary, that will see you through most of the suttas. Because the Buddha kind of did teach the same things over and over for 45 years. So, just added subtleties. Okay. Yes. So the discord that this creates in me yeah. is you know, the relationship between having a system that has monks mm-hmm. and a system that exists today. I mean, you can argue, well, 2,500 years ago there was a necessity. And the fact that the Buddhist teachings were directed very much to the monast- um, monastic life, not to say that it wasn't directed to the lay as well, seems to create a, um, a pathway, you know, a, that this really is the way to enlightenment as opposed to that other way. I mean, why have a monk system at all? And that, I don't know, I'm grappling with that, you know. So, you know, it, it sort of reminds me, you know, I, I was raised Jewish, and it reminds me of, you know, having Catholic friends that said, if you didn't embrace Christ, you could never go to heaven. It's like, oh, really? You know, it, if I didn't do it that way, I couldn't. And that's coming up around this. And I'd like mm-hmm. what insight you have about this. Yeah, so the question is about um, why did the Buddha create a monastic system? Um, it, it, basically, is he saying that it's a superior way to live over the lay approach? Well, is he superior or is he saying I mean, this is the way? Is he, saying, <laughs> is he saying it is the way? Yeah. Okay, no, so he is not saying it is the only way. So there are records in the suttas of lay people getting enlightened at all the four stages, even full enlightenment. It says if you get enlightened, fully enlightened as a lay person, you need to either die <laughs> or become a monastic within a week. <laughs> but, but who cares at that point? So, so the lay path is equally you know, open to all the four stages of enlightenment that are described in the Pali Canon. There's no question about that. Second question is, did the Buddha consider the monastic approach superior for living the full spiritual life that he described? Yeah. I think he did. I think he saw it as a more direct route with less distractions. So... But it doesn't mean that um, we are all inferior to any monk. You know, when you get on that level, ro- you know, you could go in robes tomorrow. It wouldn't change the makeup of your heart. So the the other, you know, the meaning of the word sangha is twofold. One is tradition. I'm going to talk about traditional meaning. The traditional meaning of the word sangha in Theravadan Buddhism is the monastic community, the sangha of monks and, and nuns. But the other meaning is the Arya Sangha, the Noble Sangha, which is the community of practitioners who have achieved any level of enlightenment, stream entry or above. So I consider that a kind of more meaningful collection in a way. And so it's not so much about are we in robes or not, what's the purity of our own heart? Where are the, def- where are the defilements at? Where are the factors of awakening at? Where are the Brahmaviharas at in our own heart? That's, to me, really what's important. And then it's just, what's the suitable condition that best nurtures that? And I don't know that, you know, most of us would be all that happy in a monastery. So, happiness is an important feature on the path. So, if lay life provides for us, and I'm just talking about for us, a greater degree of happiness in that way, that might be the right choice for us. Any other questions on this last part, please? Um, how do you know when you're reading the suttas what parts, as you've said yourself, are cultural and what aren't? And I'm thinking in particular about, uh, because I am reading in Buddha's words now, about halfway through, where he talks about uh, karma, 
and um, it's quite clear that the commentator is saying that this is not a cultural thing, but I have heard, um, or I think it was in the Satipatthana, uh, you could correct me, I'm, I'm no authority, mm -hmm. but I think in, in there, the point was made that it was cultural. So, I mean, how do you decide? Sure. question is, how do you decide whether something is cultural or not, like the question of karma? Um, I think the way I'm using the word cultural, uh, you'll see things that have fairly clear Indian references, like to different dwell dwellers in the heavenly realms, different levels of gods and um, devas in the heavenly realms. Some of those seem cultural to me. Um, the fact that there are other realms doesn't seem cultural to me. That seems like a description of the way the Buddha says things are. You know, whether it's true or not, I can't say from my own experience, but I think that it's very clear that he is saying that it is possible to be reborn in a realm happier than a human realm. It's possible to be reborn in a realm less happy than a human realm. It's possible to be reborn in the human realm again. And there actually are those other realms. And where one lands in that um, set of realms is dependent on karma. So I see karma as one of the things that's a key, to, key to his doctrine and not, not just a cultural element. Key to his description of the way things are. One of the descriptions of the way things are uh, that you'll find in the text is the Buddha will say something like, there is no discoverable beginning to this samsara. That beings have been um, wandering on in this cycle of birth and death, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving since beginningless time. That is a key, that's a key point. He stresses that enough, but I don't think it's just a figure of speech. So to, sometimes it's not always clear what's cultural and what's not, and you may need to talk with somebody or read a little more before you have that sense. It depends on context. But the questions of karma and rebirth, I feel, are really integral to the whole message of the Pali Suttas. doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but I... I think one would be um, misleading oneself or others to say that the Buddha didn't mean it there. I get a little bit of impression listening to Stephen Batchelor that he thinks, oh, the Buddha didn't really mean that. That that was just to draw in uh, some Hindus to the conversation. <laughs> But the, the teachings on karma and rebirth are so woven in to the suttas, book after book and story after story, that I think that's an integral piece of what the Buddha taught. But I don't think that you have to believe it. You can um, take up the stuff that's immediately experienceable here and now, go with that for a long, long time, maybe the whole of your life, and that will be fine. So... We get, we'll get to points in the suttas that people just don't feel comfortable with, and um, I'd say don't worry about figuring it out now. Leave it as an open question. You don't have to resolve it, and you don't have to believe it. Don't have to believe anything that you don't want to believe in this stuff. Uh, in talking with Gil about this question, he said, if I were to give you irrefutable proof, that there is no reincarnation, would you change your practice? And I thought about that, and I mm -hmm. thought, no, mm -hmm. obviously. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of like that. Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Buddha, there's a sutta, actually, in the Majjhima, Majjhima 60, where the Buddha says, if you don't believe in rebirth, how would you live your life? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd want to be kind to people, and I'd want to take care of my family, and I'd try to purify my mind so I didn't harm others. Great. He said, and if you did believe in rebirth, how would you live your life? Well, I'd try to be kind to others and take care of my family and purify my mind. Good. So it comes out to the same. Jerry? Guy, did you say his teachings were over 45 years? Yes, that's how long he now, taught. Is that how long Ananda was connected with him to keep all of this 
So we have it now. No, it's a good question. The Buddha taught for 45 years from age 35 to age 80. Ananda was only his attendant for the last 25 years of his life. Right. So there may have been a period of time when he wasn't there to record the discourses. But some of the discourses that are recorded seem to have happened fairly early. And so I have a sense that he repeated them for Ananda's benefit at some point further on. Like one of them that comes up this way. Uh, in the Satipatthana, there's an encouragement to practice mindfulness on the unbeautiful aspects of the body, the asuba aspects, the 32 parts, what's not beautiful inside. And then the Buddha taught that and then went off on retreat. He came back and there were many fewer bhikkhus than there were before. Why? A number of bhikkhus committed suicide because they were so disturbed by the unbeautiful things that they were seeing. So the Buddha said, let's not teach that one so strongly. Let's teach you mindfulness of in and out breathing. So the Anapanasati Sutta was promoted to overcome the emphasis on the Asuba, which was not having a good outcome in the bhikkhu community. I think that happened fairly early on. Okay, why don't we take one more break, short if you can, and we'll come back and finish with the sutta.